What's up, family? You are tuned into Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. This is Resistance in Residence, where we profile artists using their gifts to change the world. This week's Resistance in Residence artist is dancer, choreographer, and healer, Amara Tabor-Smith. Amara, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Kat, for having me. I um, yeah. I have wanted to have this conversation for a hot minute. Um, I want to start with a little bit about you, though, and specifically where and how you grew up, what your family was like. Mm-hmm. I was born and raised in San Francisco. Um, I am the youngest of four children of Clarence Smith and Francis Tabor Smith now Francis Tabor. Um, Yeah, I came up in San Francisco at a really pivotal time. It was, everything was going down. It, you know, the Black Panthers were in full effect. Um, There was the uh, takeover of Alcatraz by the Native, you know, the American Indian movement. Um, so that was the landscape that I was born in. I, I was born the year that Malcolm X was assassinated, which I was born in February. Um, and, uh, yeah, I came up in that time. So all of that shaped me, uh, coming up in the Bay area, my mother, uh, put me in a school that lasted two years called Multicultural Institute which was an experiment for two years where we had uh, teachers who were Black Panthers. uh, And half the day uh, we were in classes all together. And in the latter half of the day, they split us up according to our uh, cultural ethnic identity. So I was in Black studies in the latter half of the day and learned to speak Swahili. Um, These are my foundation. And after that, my mother helped to co- co-create uh, the first community school in San Francisco, which is San Francisco Community School. And it was started by parents and teachers. Um, and again, uh, I had pivotal teachers who were Black Panthers, who did all kinds of activism, Um We had kids that uh, went and studied with uh, Cesar Chavez down in La Paz um, about farm, you know, the farm workers rights. And it was it was a powerful time to grow up in the Bay. I bet I can't even imagine. But I can kind of because I raised my child in Oakland. Of and, course. And you know what I mean? And she and she sees it right now that she's gone. She's like, I I am a bay kid. I'm a bay kid and you see it. Um like I, I think, you know, folks like Shanaka, um, Hodge mm-hmm. and others that, you know, that that were blessed to be in this magical place that we live in. Amara, when did you discover dance and what new worlds did it open up for you? Yeah. So I will say, um, I was dancing as a small child, but really where dance became a pivotal part of my life. Uh, It was a moment when I was 13. I knew I wanted to be an actor. 
since I could remember. And I studied, I I took classes at ACT as a kid. And at one point I thought, oh, you know, I should take dance class so I can be a better mover as an actor. Right. And I ended up following a friend of mine to take a class with uh, a dancer and teacher whose name was Ed Mock. And when I came into that studio and he walked into the room, literally I had a moment as a 13 year old where I thought I saw God. And Ed, Ed Mock was a black, queer, experimental, really, uh, he was a conjure artist. He was, he was conjuring spirit through his movement. He introduced me to improvisation, um, I really felt like every time I took class with him, it was a spiritual experience. And he he really was the reason I became a dancer, where dance became more prominent in my life at that point. Mm. I... Um... I'm wondering if you you got to skip the the I talked to a lot of dancers of of color mm-hmm. and, and I I was a dancer for many years, um, and while on the one hand like there was so much freedom right in that movement, and then on the other hand, particularly in the world of ballet, there was the you're too fat, you're too skinny. Um, I mean, I had a dance teacher that would make us be in our toe shoes until our feet bled, literally. Yeah. The violence of the dance world, um, particularly, I think, for dancers of color. Did you experience that or did you get to skip that because you started with someone that made you feel like God had walked in the room? Right. Well, you know, in his studio in space, I I felt that freedom. But as a, a young dancer who wanted to, you know, grow technically, quote unquote, in all those ways, I too took ballet classes and other modern dance classes. And quite frankly, it was in more of the, you know, European contemporary forms or European ballet forms where I felt shamed for my body. Um, but I would always come back home. I would come back home to Ed's studio. I would come back home and take Congolese dance uh, with Malanga Cascalord. And I never felt that way in those spaces. Um, but, you know, the dance, the, the, the dance community at large, if, you know, it's, if we look at it in a broad, like the, the, the dance world, quote unquote, what we're talking about is Western contemporary dance, which is really rooted in a white supremacist aesthetic, right? Um, and, you know, the, I, that's why I think dancers who are coming up now are, you, I think this still very much exists, but it's not to the degree that it was when I was coming up as a dancer. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and I often say as a dance teacher that, you know, um, that there, that dance is, you know, about your body. There's nothing much, there's nothing more intimate 
than that. You know, so to be so to go into a space and want to express your from your body and have that be oppressed is, you know, is so harmful and so violent. Um, And that's what I'm really I'm looking to these younger dancers and really hopeful that they are transforming that because uh, it's, you know, yeah. So, I mean, going back to your question, I I experienced both and it's where I first had any kind of uh, image problems with my body, like where I felt self-conscious was because of that other world. But when I came home to Ed Mock's dance studio, I never experienced that. I, uh, in prepping for this interview, I was just Googling you and reading like crazy mm-hmm. and saw somewhere that you, my, I don't know if your website or, or um, your bio on a grant that you received, but you describing your work as Afro-futurist conjure art. What does that mean? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. So I, I call what I do conjure art. I started doing this uh, back in 2015. Um, and a conjure art, the definition that I, that I use that is a work in progress as a definition is an artist, uh, a, a visual or performing artist, uh, or musician even that is utilizing, uh, spiritual ritual, uh, in their art making practice to affect social change, to affect, personal and collective healing. Um, and I see it as that you, where my work is concerned, I utilize um, rituals from my spiritual practice. I am an initiate in the Yoruba Lukumi tradition, also known as Santeria. Um, and I experiment with ritual. I don't use rituals as they are, but I draw from the rituals of my practice in my uh, dance and performance making to uh, shift the vibration of the issues that I address in my work. So I'm not making trauma art. I am not um, putting forth an issue and showing you how hard how horrible it is. You can get all that on social media, you know, but how is my work shifting the vibration of the issue that you may not necessarily see? So for example, the project that I just finished that I did in collaboration with Ellen Sebastian Chang, who's a director, was Houseful of Black Women. And Um, Over the course of the eight years that we did that project, um, we were focusing on the displacement, the well-being, and the sex trafficking of Black women women and girls in Oakland. And what you did not see if you attended any performance or were a part of any uh, uh, offering was we did not um, put that trauma on display, but instead, you know, the idea was how do we meet in a space of mutual uh, vulnerability so that the audience is not just witness, they are, they are an active participant 
um, in the ritual of the performance so that we are there together shifting the vibration. But if, you know, in my experience, if we talk too much about the trauma, then we actually can desensitize ourselves to the trauma or become addicted to, oh, I need to hear about the trauma so I can, I can, uh, I can feel. And it's like, no, how do you get to the deep well of healing that needs to happen within you that also needs to happen in terms of the issue? So, you know, you're coming into a space with people who are survivors of trafficking and we're all in a ritual together. You're going to feel it, even if you can't name it, even if you can't name what's coming up or what's shifting for you. The more important thing is that the shift takes place. So that is what I'm always hoping to do with conjure art is shift the vibration of the issues that I um, explore in a performance work. And I was I was definitely going to talk about about House Full of Black Women, but I'm going to segue to this other question because I, I it may be a little redundant, but I'm going to ask you. Um, it in a little different way than you just responded. And, and that's, you know, I've spent, we were talking about this before I press record, spent most of my time um, as an organizer fighting, fighting, fighting for change, mm-hmm. right? Fighting, fighting, fighting for justice, fighting, fighting, fighting for liberation. Like I, I literally, you know, battle worn. Um, mm-hmm. and, and in the last couple of years though, as we've moved, cause I, I think people that were not here in the Bay area don't understand that there was a decade plus of literal war in the streets, right. Between the people in the state, people were getting tear mm-hmm. gas beaten up or like, this was a thing and we don't, we don't talk about it enough. Um, but in the last couple of, and I really believe that that was how we were going to win, um, that we just mm-hmm. had to fight and fight and fight. Mm-hmm. And the last couple of years I've gotten so clear that a liberation is actually going to come through the healing and specifically healing justice. And then again, I, don't, I don't know why I'm getting emotional. Whoa. Yep. 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 And that it is through the addressment of our trauma so that we can be whole and healthy humans. Right. Which I think is actually a way more terrifying thought to the state and our oppressors um, than us fighting because they know they have more jails, more guns, more, they have all that. Right. Like that. They have, they have intentionally kept us, Jesse, you have to beat beat this guy. I don't know what fucked up in the head and the heart and the soul. That was has been an intentional strategy so that we cannot fight, mm. so, so we cannot heal, so that we cannot mm. engage in actual liberatory practice. And I just, I would, I just want to hear you reflect on that. The power of healing, on uh, the pathway of healing as as our walk to liberation. Ooh, yes, the pathway to healing as crucial to our liberation. And I will say that, you know, one of the ways that I've been, and I've been in an evolutionary state around my work too, because for years it's all been, it's been about the struggle for liberation, the fight for liberation. And Uh, What became, what has become clear to me over time is that um, as long as I am fighting, I need something to fight against in order to, um, to, 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 if my focus is on the battle, then I need the battle 
to, to justify my actions. Um, I really appreciate how uh, Ellen Sebastian Chang, who I worked with, in one of our gatherings when we were doing our project, talked about, I'm no longer using the word resistance. I'm using insistence. And that really struck mm. with me because to resist, you need something to resist against to have power, right? It's like right. trying to throw a punch into thin air. It's diffused. It needs something to push up against. But in the spirit of insistence, you're saying, actually, um, liberation is my right. Liberation is my destiny. Liberation is absolutely my, yeah, my right. Um, and so insistence has another feeling because you're not looking to the oppression but you're actually affirming the recalibration, the alignment. And so, you know, I, I often talk to people like I talk about, you know, Audre Lorde's quote, the master's tools cannot be used to take down the master's house, that it is important that when we use that phrase that we're asking our, we're asking ourselves, or I'm asking myself, where am I using the master's tools or what tools am I using that might be the master's tools? So coming back to our self-healing is about what practices have I um, have I been indoctrinated in that I have been socialized around that is actually upholding the very systems that I'm trying to be a part of uh, the disillusion of the the composting of. So I like to mm. talk about like how do we compost? patriarchy, imperialist, white supremacist, capitalist patriarchy, because it's an energy source. And as scientists will say, is like energy will always exist. But how do we, you know, be a part of composting that energy into something else? And so if I know very well what I'm oppressed around, but what I need to focus on is like, once that oppression is gone, what replaces it? right? Mm -hmm. Nature abhors a vacuum. So if I don't get clear about what it is that I am, what my liberation needs to feel like, mm -hmm. then I will replace it with the, the oppression that I am more practiced in experiencing. So that means like daily excavating of imperialist, white supremacist, capitalist, patriarchy, the bell hooks term, like how is that within me and how do I keep di divesting from it? How do I keep excavating it outside, pulling the roots of that out of my body and out of my spirit and out of my psyche? Mm-hmm. I knew that was the question for you. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, Amara, you just spent eight years, I believe, working on House Full of Black Women. Mm -hmm. um, that's a long time for a project. Um, what are you doing now? What what what's 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 on the horizon? Yeah. Ooh, what's on the horizon right now is um, I'm working slower and I'm working smaller yet more expansive. So um, I'm in the beginning stages of a new 
project that um, yet to be named, yet to even be formulated uh, clearly, but um, that is focusing on uh, how we not just survive, but how do we endure these times that we're in now to get to the other side? And so what are the rituals for, so as I talked about, you know, excavating white supremacy from within me and doing my healing work, how, uh, what are the rituals for that healing that can invite an audience, that can invite people to be a part of in a performance experience that is also not a performance, a ritual that's also a performance, an experiment. Um, so I'm just really, I'm playing right now with that. And in the meantime, focusing my energy in the, in the, in the dark spaces of, you know, being a part of the upheaval of these systems that are, you know, provoking and 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 manifesting in war on this planet right now in um, environmental catastrophe. I I see myself as a death doula for patriarchy. So I'm doing that doula work. <laughs> word. And for folks that want to follow all of your brilliance and amazingness, where can they go? Uh, they can go to my website, deepwatersdance.com. And I'm out there on social media, sort of, uh, but I'm, I'm in Oakland. I'm here and I see me on the streets, you know, uh, connect with someone who knows me, get my number. I'm very available. Y'all, you were listening to Law and Disorder. I'm your host, Kat Brooks. This week's resistance and residence artist is artist, actor, dancer, choreographer, and healer, Amara Tabor Smith. Amara, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Kat. Thank you for all the beautiful and important work that you do in the world. Thank you for that. Thank you. <laughs> You've been listening to Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. That's it for this episode, family. Law and Disorder is produced at KPFA. That's listener-supported radio on the Pacifica Network. The show is produced by Jesse Strauss and hosted by me, Kat Brooks. Our theme music was composed by Steve Raskin of Fort Knox 5. Our Resistance in Residence theme music was composed by Jesse Strauss. If you like what you heard, please follow us on social media at Law and Dis. And subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also find our content live at 8 a.m. weekdays on KPFA. That's 94.1 FM in the Bay Area. Our show and all KPFA's programs are funded exclusively by you, the listeners. If you're in a position to support us, please donate today at kpfa.org. Take care of yourself and take care of each other. We all we got, fam. <laughs>